This is an excerpt from a short story, Interior Blindness. We drove. We'd rent cars for everything. We'd rent cars to drive for an hour before going to the local bar on the corner. We'd rent cars to sit in traffic and listen to music. We'd drive the city's highways, making wide loops aimlessly. Places like the Lincoln Tunnel and the major Deegan Expressway became pastimes in our relationship, points of nostalgic reference. He felt more comfortable in perpetual motion. I once asked him if he wanted to buy a car. He refused and I twitched with the wanting of more as we continued our relationship on rented time with a comfortable lack of ownership installed. I loved him nonetheless. We ran parallel as casualties of an art scene where neuroses was a badge of honor and anything suburban an abscess of leprosy to be sheathed and in private lanced and removed. When we met, we were both too involved in the social aspect of art rather than actual, any actual means of production. This changed over time, but we reaped little reward. They probably would have never accepted the radical discourse of our paintings anyway, especially when we joined together on the same canvas. Constant overlapping and erasure, his abstraction, attacking my Rubenesque female forms. To me, evidence of patriarchal intention. To him, abstraction as anti-governmental statement, a reinforcement of the sovereign mind. I argued that the American movement of abstraction was funded by the CIA and we made big bloody brown messes of the things, bickering constantly. It was a never ending match of mental ping pong. We were always arm's length apart competing within our self-sanctioned system of hierarchical order. Just enough withholding to feel like passion was tangible. He drew me in in my early 20s and kept me pinned with curated eccentricity for the following 20 years. He collected animals, images of animals attacking each other. Ripped from magazines, they multiplied and existed in a flat file drawer in his studio apartment. He wanted predator-prey situations to hold in his hands, original blood sports to tout out and ponder. He took weirdness far and changed his name to one of a hackneyed rock star, a pillar of past glory, to be a better Google search. <laughs> I never brought up his birth name. I never wanted to acknowledge it and pop the bubble of cool, believing that it might inform my impotent and misguided art practice. Together for years, we had the usual yet dizzying ascension into the realization that we'd never make it as artists. A failure bathing under the palatable weak light of just enough money to feel all right about life. But the feeling of inadequacy grew up with us, like a son who is strong and disfigured. He cleaned out the studio one day and threw out all of the art. This whitewashing of both of our work came to fruition after he went on a three-week-long manic tear sending emails to any mid-range gallery he could think of. The emails went out in week one, and the following two were spent checking the Gmail account with the obsessive hope of a child who keeps checking to see if their parents were awake on Christmas Day. To him, the galleries were like mommy and daddy, 
custodians of the potential gifts that were recognition and fans. However, these parents endured eternal sleep. The presents remained wrapped and imagining what was inside or what life could have been like if drove him mad. I had a different outlook. I hoped I would be remembered in history as being part of a small bohemia. I hoped I would be an artist's artist. And when our generation faded into old age and death, that the art students would talk about me, him, and a couple of our friends as ones who didn't get sucked into the desire to be a member of the glitterati. We would be the ones who didn't get tricked into caring about the art world, which was revealing itself to be a gross celebration of capitalism that was enduring a financial crash and a sloppy makeout session with the increasingly bad pop culture. He fundamentally disagreed. He wanted to be included in the moment. That never making it feeling drew him into an undertow of self-loathing. And with sleep-deprived fury, he broke down all of our canvases, jigsawed the panels into pieces, and p filled contractor bags with the wreckage of our 15-year-long stint of collaborative work. He spared nothing. I discovered the annihilation when I went to the studio one evening after my day job. I walked into the space and thought I had made a mistake. The air was acrid, the walls dripped with fresh oil-based paint collecting into pools on the floor. Overspray covered the windows and a used fire extinguisher with white smudged fingerprints lay discarded in the corner. I backed out of the unrecognizable room to check the number on the door. 305, yeah, I said out loud to myself. We only had this space for eight years. I careened down the hall searching for a clue and thought, maybe the rent, maybe the landlord, maybe there was a fire, maybe we had to move to another space and he just did the work himself. A card catalog of imagined scenarios shuffled through my head. I kept calling his cell and it kept going to voicemail. You have reached the voicemail box of 718-832-2836. If you would like to leave a voicemail, please wait for the tone. Tone. Hey, it's me. I think something happened. I'm here at the studio and everything is missing. I'm really confused. There must have been a mistake or something. Our work is gone. Can you call me, please? I'm freaking out. Click. You have reached the voice mailbox of 718-832-2836. If you would like to leave a voicemail, please wait for the tone. Tone. Hi. I'm walking around the building, and there are no notices or signs of anything belonging to us, and I don't know why you can never pick up the fucking phone when I really need you. I don't even have the number for the fucking super. I guess I'm just going to go see if you're home. Click. I went to his apartment. He was sitting on a black leather Ikea couch waiting my arrival. I guess he got the voicemails. He didn't say anything as I walked into the space. The look on his face was almighty. I knew he had an explanation. He finally said, there was no mistake, and added with an eerily calm cool, it's over now. We could feel better. I walked backwards in shock, left, and cried for two days at my own apartment, five blocks away from his and ten for the studio. My roommate was concerned. 